thing you gave me was time. You didn't really know me. We were from the same neighborhood and area, but I was with a group of guys that wanted to go to college, wanted to play ball. And you actually gave us that reality that, hey, this could actually happen because we saw somebody that was like us and that we wanted to become. Recruiting is about relationships. It's built on trust. It's built on doing the right things. And it's built on your head coaches and your athletic director, their vision. And I think we have two great leaders, both of those positions. So it makes it easy for me to go out and, and do what I do. Be aggressive. Let's win. Here we go. All my life, man, you've been a you've been a model for for who I wanted to be. Even mm. when I rejected, man, Randy don't know what he, he don't know what he's talking about. You know what I mean? Uh, and that was just yesterday. But uh, <laughs> but no, all my life, you know, I, you you've been a model for me. You've been a model for consistency. You've been a model for caring about others. You've been a model for being a model. Uh, and and I appreciate that, and and um, you know, and I'll stand on the on the uh, Empire State Building and and yell that out. And so I, I just want to let you know that I that I really appreciate who you are and who you've been for me. Well, well do you mind ahead. if I thank you for all of that? And then there's this. Uh -huh. you, sometimes when people talk about what gives people what gives someone the the energy to move forward and to try to lead more or to just sort of sustain themselves in the effort sometimes you get folks who come along who sop it up and soak it up more than others mm -hmm. and then they know how to apply it so that they're not just a recipient of leadership they then become a distributor of it and it comes naturally to them and they deliver it naturally to those that they encounter. The force multiplier of me being fortunate enough to be in your life when you were a teenager, the force multiplier of that is that you've gone out and you have touched the lives of more young men than most people would ever do in a lifetime. So uh, I am energized every time I see you do what you do uh, with the lives of the young men who are placed under your care and with the lives of the young women that I know who you encounter, even though you don't coach. Right. So I want to thank you for giving me the energy to keep doing uh, whatever it is that I do in the lives of folks. So I thank you, brother. You have been a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. This is a thank you session, right? <laughs> um, but you know what, man, when, when, like you said, when, when you have people who respect what um, one another has been blessed to be able to do, then you know you do get into that thank you mode. So so as we get started, I know right. I know a lot of this story of yours, but some of it I don't know, uh, and, and some of it, you know, I I because I've gotten a little bit older, uh, and you can in the really faintly I do the best that I can with the lighting to cover the gray hairs, but I do have a couple, you know, uh, but but I, so I miss some of it. Can you take us through through your journey, right? Through your journey uh, from a guy who didn't have a really good jump shot uh, back in the day. That's uh, not true. 
you and you can start before that moment <laughs> but but take us through through your journey that has has you today as as the CEO and and president of at last and, and we'll talk about at last in a minute but but take us through your journey your Randy Bowman's life journey gladly uh, despite the disrespect for the jump shot which wasn't that bad <laughs> it was okay um, it was okay the 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 beauty of a difficult life is that the challenges associated with it don't have to be wasted like you can take that and you can turn it into magic in the lives of others and progress in your own life uh, i was my journey is a simple one and it's replicated by many I was born to a mother who was amazing. Like my mom was great. Uh, she was not well resourced. We were poor. And there are those folks who say, oh my God, I didn't even know we were poor. Well, I did. <laughs> it was evident. This was not news to me. Uh, but my mom was great in all the ways that I needed her to be. She poured more into me than I ever thought any vessel could contain. So she was absolutely great. She started having children when she was a teenager. I was the second of those kids. She would go on to have four. And uh, her relationship with the fathers of those children didn't always work out the way that she wanted them to. And she wasn't always able to be at her best for herself, but she was always at her best for us. And with me being the oldest boy, uh, certainly the way that uh, things were thought about at that time, it gave me an obligation to go out and be helpful with my mom to try and make things work economically for our family. So I gladly did that as a teenager. Heck, I had my first job when I was 12. I had my first hustle when I was like nine. Uh, and I've been working ever since then. And what it, what it did was to give me sort of insights into a couple of things. How does life look through the eyes of a nine-year-old kid who's looking around at an impoverished area and wondering, how do I make something out of this? So it gave me that perspective. The other perspective it gave me is, how does life look for a woman who's bright? Uh, a woman who's bright, a woman who wants the best for her children, a woman who values the same things that the rest of us value that we associate with being middle-class values, but they're really sort of human values. Uh, she valued education. She valued family. She valued faith. She valued all the things. She valued discipline. All the things that others valued, she did too. But she didn't always have the resources that would allow her to give voice to those values in the way that she prosecuted life. It's hard to demonstrate the values that you have when you have no resources. It's hard to demonstrate that you value education when you have to go to work at night instead of helping your kids with, your, with their homework. It's hard to show that you value education when you need for your son to skip some educational things so that he can go to work to help keep the economics around the house going. And that becomes hard. So I am thankful for uh, the things that I learned from a difficult upbringing because it gave me the ingredients to move forth in life so that when I met other kids, who were growing up in the circumstance that I grew up in, it made it easier for me to relate to them. That's what made it so easy for me to relate to Van when I met you. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It also made it easier for me to be able to visit with moms who are single and impoverished and struggling and to relate to them in a way that allowed them to know that I saw them not through a lens, not through a lens of judgment, but through a lens of sort of compassion and understanding. And it meant that they would interact with me with more trust rather than sliding into a defensive mode. It's really that set of life experiences and the fact that my mother raised me to understand that if you're in a better circumstance than someone, it really just means you're in a better circumstance. It doesn't mean that you're a better person. And so maybe you walk this earth with a little more humility and you don't think that you're the source of your blessings. Uh, it's, they come from a different power, a higher power. That perspective and that set of life experiences, uh, in addition to some success that I had in business, put me in a position to create at last um, so that I could try and honor the journey that my mother and I traveled together when we were trying to make things work economically for our family. Now, I want to honor that journey by helping other little nine-year-old kids who are living in challenging circumstances and single moms and impoverished moms who want better lives for those kids when they become adults. Uh, the combination of those things is what sort of put me in this place. And I feel blessed to be able to do this work. Now, you, you have alluded to at last, but but I want to give you I want to give you a moment to to really explain what at last is to someone who who has no clue. Again, you you alluded to it a bit, but um, what is at last? I got, like I said, you you kind of alluded to a little bit as to where it got started, what how it poured from your heart, but but what is it? The best way to think of it is that it's um, it's an educational outcomes enhancement program. So that's, if you need a label for it, that's one. Here's another way to think about it from a label standpoint. Everyone knows what a boarding school is. At last isn't a boarding school, it's a boarding experience. We're not a school. So we are a boarding school without the school part. The easiest way to understand at last is this. We help kids to perform better during the seven hours a day that they are in school by giving them better educational resources during the 17 hours a day that they are not in school. And it's based on research that I found. It only took nine months to find this van, but it's based on research that I found that said the greatest predictor of whether or not a child is going to do well in school is not the kid's race, is not the kid's gender, it's not even the quality of the school that the kid attends. The biggest determinant, the biggest predictor is does that kid come to school out of a house and then return back to a house that has middle-class or above educational resources to offer that kid so that the learning that the kid experiences doesn't end when the school day ends. So if a kid comes out of a middle-class or above household, uh, that's the greatest predictor of whether or not they are going to do well in school. So that being the case, the question for me became, how would impoverished kids perform academically if you gave them the benefit of going to school out of a well-resourced home with regard to educational enhancements? And at last is something that I created to answer that question. Here's how it works. We served elementary school age kids 
And so our first cohort is third, fourth, and fifth graders. And we build residences in their impoverished neighborhoods. So think of it as being almost like a dorm. And then we empower parents to choose to have their elementary school age kid live in that dorm and get access to the educational resources that we infuse it with throughout the school week. And so the kids come to us on Sundays. They're with us every day that precedes a school day. The reason I'm not with them tonight is that tomorrow's Good Friday. So they're with us every day that precedes a school day. They come to us on Sundays at around three o'clock. From three o'clock until six o'clock, we're pretty academically intensive. And then from six till seven, they get a great meal. And then from seven to eight, they have extracurricular exploration where they get a chance to learn about things that are interesting to them. I can't simply have them learning about things that are interesting to me. And so that's when they get to explore uh, songwriting, if that's their thing, or music, if that's their thing, or programming, encoding, if that's their thing, or sports, if that's their thing. And then at eight o'clock, it's time for you to communicate with your mom. It's time for you to take care of a little bit of hygiene. It's time for you to take it to bed, get a good night of uninterrupted sleep, and then they wake up the next morning. And we start the process of them going to school. They go to the school that the parent has chosen for them. When that school day ends on Monday, they come back to us and the process starts again. That starts on Sundays and it goes until they get out of school on Friday. When they get out of school on Friday, they go home to their primary home with their families. And they're with their families on uh, weekends, holidays, and over the course of the summer. They are with their families more days in a year than they are with us. And the only time that they are with our program is if the mom or dad or both decide that we're the right program, the right resource for that family to help that kid get a much better education than the one that they are getting now to get better educational outcomes. That's at last. We're in a third semester of operation. And I have to tell you so far, the outcomes that we've gotten have been even better than I thought they would be. And you notice I say that the outcome that, that they've gotten has been better. This isn't one of those things where the person who created the program just really feels good about the program, but the outcomes aren't there. Right. It's like when you're, when you're coaching a game, if you look up at the scoreboard and you're really happy with the way the team played, but you lost by 40, so it's not enough right. that you feel good. Exactly. These kids are performing well based on the grades that they're getting from the schools that they attend. That's at last, it's been really successful. And I'm, uh, I feel thankful for that. Wow, man! Um, as I listen to you, uh, as as you as you talk through it, I just see my life, right? And I, I did just like your kids. They they have good parents. The the kid because they you said something very important. You said they made a choice, right? They those parents have made a choice that from from an educational standpoint, just like your mom, just like my mom. Education is important, but they're just not resourced to be able to to give it to their kids that they love the way that the way that they should to be able to have them be successful. And so, man, you know, I'm like 200 years old and, and I wish, you know, I wish that I would have had a program like this, you know, as much as my family, as much as my parents cared about me program like this would have uh, I know would have helped me to be 
successful as a student, you know. Um, and I, I could say yes that that I had success, but man, I a program like this could have taken it to another level. I'll tell you something that should not surprise you, but when I was thinking about this and thinking about the kinds of kids that would come through this program, you're one of the folks that I thought about, like your childhood, mm -hmm. not just my own, but yours, mm -hmm. and like your mom and what she valued mm -hmm. and how she regarded your future and what she wanted for you. So yeah, you're not, you're not far from the uh, design DNA of this program. Mm. All right, well, uh, uh, I could say some things that would take us off track. So I right. won't, <laughs> right. I won't. Now right. let, let's talk about, let's talk about where you are as a leader. And man, I, I, I in my life, right, in my life, you, you've been an incredible leader, but but let's talk about where you are as a leader. And, and then let's talk about this space that we live in right now. Um, we talk about COVID. We talk about social justice across our country. We talk about the things that, that your kids that you work with and the parents that you work with that they deal with every day, the people who work with at last. How has the place that we live today, how has that made you a better leader in your mind? Well, one of the things that I think it's done is it's given me a chance to get some reps um, with the kinds of conditions in place that I've tried to plan for. So it's allowed me to develop confidence in the plan that I put together to meet sort of exigent circumstances because everybody's got a plan. But if the circumstances that require you to test that plan to see if it could be successful, if those circumstances don't arise, then you aren't able to put that plan into play and you don't know if it's going to be effective or not. You're taking confidence in a model that you've written and models are great, but what plays out in real life when you execute is what actually matters. So it has forced us to test uh, the plans that we had when things didn't go according to our plan. The bottom line is that leadership has to be focused on accomplishing the mission. Mm -hmm. And the mission of the organization is the mission of the organization. And the leadership can't insist on having a clean runway to get the plane off the ground and to go land into the mission. The fact that we didn't have a clean runway because COVID was there and social issues were present it doesn't matter. We still had to be able to execute the plan as we modified it to get the plane off the doggone runway and to land in the mission. Right. It's made us better by virtue of the fact that it forced us to test our ability to do that, not simply plan our ability to do it. We, we always say the mission is the mission and the standard over your feelings. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, like you said, I mean, that's, that's, that's big time. Who, as we continue on this leadership road, who have been the greatest leaders in your life? And give us a couple of things that you've, that you've learned from them. Hmm. So two folks come to mind for me quickly. If I took more time, I'm sure I could think of others, but two jump out at me. One is my grandfather, my mother's father quiet man, didn't have a lot to say. World War II veteran, Purple Heart, 
um, holder, shot up in theater in Italy, came home, still carrying the shrapnel from those wounds. A man who walked in dignity, despite not having a lot of uh, material resources, a man who held his head up and maintained his dignity when society said that the freedom that he went and fought for would not be a freedom he could share in at home, still moved with his dignity. Um, and a man who ultimately didn't have to say a lot to me to show me what leadership looked like. You just have to keep pushing forward until you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. It doesn't have to be easy. It doesn't have to be fun. It just has to get done. Mm. That's what I learned from watching my grandfather, amazing man. And then there's um, uh, another young lady named Cheryl Austin, who's more of a peer. She's a little younger than I am, but she leads a group in Dallas called the Employee Retirement Fund. It's a pension fund for the city employees in Dallas who are not uh, police and fire. And the leadership that I saw from her, I was on the board of the pension fund. She was the lead executive. One of the things that watching her reminded me of and sort of validated in my life uh, as a leader is that you get a lot more mileage out of total competence than you do out of charisma alone. Uh, charisma is a poor long-term strategy standing alone. You'd better be the whole package. You better have it all. When you do, the mileage is amazing. I watched her for five years lead with the total package in complete balance, rather than being sort of a your charisma jockey. I admired the competence that she demonstrated, the leadership, the charisma, all in balance, total competence. Wow, big points. So when you are when you are choosing people, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a big book guy. And uh, so we, we talk about uh, and with, with my players, we talk about having the right people on the bus, having the right people on the bus and having them in the right places. Well, that requires the leader to choose who he wants on the bus. How do you how do you go about choosing? Because I think in in your space, who is with you is very important, right, on, on this mission. How do you go about choosing the right people to be on your bus? It's all about alignment with mission, loyalty to mission, and then technical competence. And the truth of the matter is, you can't have enough technical competence to get on this bus if you're not aligned with the mission and loyal to the mission. I can't worry about the alignment and loyalty of the folks on the bus when I'm trying to lead this thing to where it's trying to go. Those things have to be a given. And the gravitational pull of alignment with mission and loyalty to mission is a lot stronger than the gravitational pull of technical competency. People will fail an organization uh, when they have the technical competence to do the job uh, if they aren't aligned with the mission anymore or if they're not loyal to the mission. If they are loyal to the mission, they will bust their hump and perform beyond their technical competence to make it happen 
and where their technical competence ends, they'll get it supplemented by somebody who knows more than they do. I need them aligned and loyal to the mission. The technical competence piece matters a lot and you have to have it. But you can score 100 on technical competence. And if you score 70 on alignment and loyalty to mission, you have to work for somebody else. Right, right. At last, doesn't need you. Mm-hmm. That's what I look for is like that balance. Okay. So how would your staff, how would your staff describe your leadership style? And has it changed? Has it changed over the years? You know, my leadership, my leadership style hasn't changed in terms of my approach. What what people should notice it is, is that I'm better in, the, in its execution, like better in the execution of the approach that I've always taken. Because I think the only leadership style that really, really works is one that's rooted in authenticity. You have to lead in a way that is authentic to you. Right. And if you don't, I think that becomes transparent because I think you have to then become contrived to try and demonstrate something that you're not feeling from your heart. So authenticity uh, is huge no matter your style. My style happens to be one of uh, what gets described as servant leadership, but it's servant leadership with lots of accountability. And that's for me and for the staff. Uh, I am here to serve you. I am here to help you find your success. I'm here to uh, make you successful to the extent you're willing to be shaped into someone who can be successful. But ultimately, we're going to get done the things that we have to get done to move forward in the mission for these children. And we're going to be accountable for it, both of us, if it's not happening. Because everything that's in an organization that I'm leading, I'm accountable for. I either created it or allowed it to be created and I'm tolerating it. Right. So it's servant leadership with lots of accountability. I do not micromanage. I'm not a screamer. Uh, When you have the authority to make decisions, I don't understand why I should have to scream because I don't really need to do that. So that's the, that's the way that I think they would describe my, my leadership style. And over time, it hasn't really changed. I just, I hope I've become better at executing that style. It's certainly authentic to who I am. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to refute the claims, right? That you're not a screamer because you <laughs> screamed at me before. I've been screamed at by you. I, I, it was many years ago, but I do remember and this was before social media. This was before sure. cell phones. Uh, so I do not have video footage, but I, I have been screamed at by you. Uh, this then, is true. I think right. I may have been a 21-year-old college student at the time. Yeah, well, and, I mean, at least. And that, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I was scarred by that moment, right? Well, you know, I get it. I get it. You seem to have recovered fine. <laughs> I will cop to that. You don't need video evidence of it. I'll just cop to that. That happened. Uh, okay. So you you know, you made a lot of references and you've done it throughout. You made you made a lot of references as we've had head coaches. We've even had a Super Bowl champion coach on the podcast. We've had conference commissioners. 
athletic directors, and a lot, lot of people who are who live in the world of sports. But you've made some references, the same references that they've made to 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 leadership, to uh, things that deal with sports. So so I'm going to slide a question in that I I normally say for coaches, uh, really for athletic directors, but you know, for me, game day, right? Uh, and, and where I get my joy and where I get my happiness as a coach is when, when I have a player who just can't get it, right? He just can't figure out what I want him to do in cover two. We've repped it. We've talked mm -hmm. about it. He's seen it on the video and, and he just, he, he's just not getting it. But then all of a sudden, the light bulb comes on and I see it. I see it happen, right? Yeah. So that's game day. Yeah, I know I have the days out on the field in the stadium, but but that's the day as a coach. Some things are off the field, but that's the mm -hmm. day as a coach that that you you get great joy from doing what you do. So yeah. for you, what is your game day? What is that thing that that is a touchdown for you? Man, I have... Um... I have more than <clears throat> more than my share of them. Like I am, I'm blessed with those. So I'll, I'll give you a couple. One is when I am speaking with the mothers who enter the lottery to get their children in the program. And we go through the lottery process and the lottery process chooses their child and they're now in interview mode with us to see if the expectations that I have from them as parents or something that they're willing to deliver on. And if the expectations that I want them to have in us as a program are things that give them comfort. And when they have that moment, when we sat in there and we've cried all the tears that they can cry because they really want their kid in this program, we've gone through that interview and it works out. And then they get to hear the message, okay, your child is now a scholar in residence in at last. And they get a chance to emote and to say, now, this isn't their quote, but this is a sentiment that they're chasing. Now I get a chance to demonstrate to the world that I do value education because you're giving us the resources to live out that value. Uh, that moment never gets old. And every time it happens, I look at those women, I look at their smiles and I look at their emotion and all I can see is my mom's face. So that one is huge. That's what the moms, here's one with the kids. Um, we've had kids in this program who have been retained or held back a grade. We have kids who have had poor grades the entirety of the time that they've been in school. And they are convinced that they are not capable as learners. Uh, sometimes their teachers have told them that they can't learn or that they're dumb. Sometimes they've even had principals who have told them that. And then they go through the program with us and we give them the things that they would have had access to when they're at home if they've been fortunate enough to be born into a more prosperous family. And then they're in school every day and every day they're repping the homework with us. They're repping uh, supplemental work with us to expand their understanding in the material and to ensure that they have a grasp of it. And they just going through those reps and the grades don't get better initially, but then they get to the end of the grading period. And I had a kid who ran up to me, and this is not an uncommon thing. When the van pulled up to drop him off at at last, he jumped out of the van 
and he usually just sort of walks up. He jumps out of the van and he's waving a piece of paper at me. And he says, Mr. B, Mr. B, I got something I wanna show you. He runs up, gives me a big hug instead of showing me the paper. And then he says, look at this. And this is a kid who was making really, really bad grades before he joined us. And this kid had an even distribution of A's and B's and the glee on his face to be able to share that report card in that moment. And when he said, I can't wait for my mom to see this report card, man, that's, a, that's more than a touchdown. That's, we win conference. Right. You know, you're like, that's that. I'm blessed to have those days more often um, than I've earned. So those, those are those days like that for me. And, you know, I, I only have one, one final question. It's a pretty cool question, but man. So as you, as you go through that story, um, it, it makes me think that, you know, there are a lot, there are some people in, on this earth who are rich, right? When I say rich, I'm talking from an economic standpoint, man, they got more money than they can count, more money than they can ever spend. But the truth of it is, is that some of them will never experience that, right? And, and, and that, man, you can't, there's no car, there's no house, there's no ring, there's no plane, there's no experience on an island somewhere that can measure up to that. And, right. and it's so unfortunate that that there's people that they can they'll never experience that they'll never be and no matter but they can buy things right they can they can go places but they can never experience that you know yep. and that, that that blessing that you in your way and and i in my way mm -hmm. man we we are the now can't buy any planes with the riches we have but but we are we are amongst the richest on earth in in those ways and you know honestly i, I sometimes wonder is it more valuable you know what i mean i love the planes but is it more valuable <laughs> right than than those types of riches the fi the final question i have is a is a i don't know sometimes it's a cool question for people and sometimes it's a question that, that causes them angst. But the question that I have for you is like, if you had, if you could look at the young Randy Bowman, right? If you could look at that dude and you could talk to him, what would you, what would you tell him that, man, you wish, you wish you could have told him way back when, you know, the, the Randy Bowman of 20 years ago, what would you, what would you say to that young man? 20 years ago? Let's go a little bit further than that. Let's I'd go, go further back. Let's go, let's take, let's go 30 years, right? I'm gonna, I would say this to the rain, to the one who was um, most in doubt, the one who was most in despair, the one who had the least amount of hope. So what I would tell nine-year-old me is, don't despair, stay true to who you are, this works out. 
is not going to be easy, but this works out. And don't look for, like, I would tell them, you're not going to find confidence in your journey, looking for it in the creases and crevices of the mountainous doubt that other people have in your abilities. You're never going to find confidence and success there. So don't look for it there. Keep moving. Bet everything you have on you every day. And then do everything you can to make that bet pay off. You're going to be okay. That's what I would tell that guy. Wow. Hope he'd listen, man. I hope he'd listen, brother. Oh, he might not listen, man. That, that dude, he, I mean, you know. He may, man, I, don't, <laughs> not going I don't know what this guy, man. I don't yeah, know. Don't, I don't, don't tell him about that guy. <laughs> right. Well, man, Randy, I, you know, listen. I don't, I don't know a time where you and I have had a conversation on the phone or in person uh, that was quick. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> right, right. A lot of the times, if I, if I was able to, I was taking incredible notes. And you know what? I might not have been taking notes with a pen, but I was taking incredible mental notes because just spending a little time with you and, and hearing you speak, man, again, I, I, see, I see the direction that you've taken my life, right? I, I see myself. And, um, and I'm so happy, so blessed, so pleased that I see you making my life happen in other young people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm so thankful that I've been able to, to grow the tree, right? I've mm-hmm. been able to, yes. to be the seed and, and that you planted in me and to be able to put it in other young men's lives is, is, is so cool when I talk to players that I've coached, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, our worlds are a little bit different, but they're the same. I talk to players that I've coached and one of my players, one of my former players, Tremaine Jackson, Tremaine has been on the podcast before. Well, Tremaine is the head coach at Valdosta State University. Okay. And um, to, to see him be who he is, and to to know that this young dude got on my nerves. I walked up and down the halls as his coach, and I couldn't get him to stop following me around. You know what I mean? And then I and then I look up many years later, and he has an entourage of coaches following him around. You yep. know? And so um, again, man, I, I appreciate your time. Not just tonight, but all the years of my life that 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 we've been that we've been connected. I love you, uh, and and um, thank you again. I love you too, brother. The blessing has been mine. I'm incredibly proud of you.